Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. All right, hello, fellow data nerds. Uh, my guest today is Bern Hobart. Uh, Bern is the author of The Diff, a Substack newsletter covering inflection points in finance and technology. And I'm a huge reader and fan myself. So, Bern, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, really excited. Now, you, last year you wrote a, a, a kind of a, a article about airline loyalty points, which I found really interesting and and fascinating. And so, one of the things I want to tease out: so, so airline loyalty programs have a higher valuation than the airlines themselves. So they're basically like like fintech companies masquerading as airlines. Yeah, yeah. If you do the math on, um, you look at how much money the loyalty programs make, and a lot of the airlines have broken this out um, for reasons we'll get into. Um, and then you look at what kind of valuation would traditionally be ascribed to a company that grows at X percent a year and is pretty recession resistant and has um, cash operating cash flow of Y. Yeah, you do get to a valuation that is actually um, in excess of the market cap of the airlines. So in theory, in theory, the entire business of actually flying people really fast from place to place and you know allowing humans to transcend our earthly bounds in theory that actually has negative value and destroys more than 100% of the equity capital you put into it now is that because the airline industry at least in the united states is just so competitive or what's the what what is the reason why it's um why the fintech part of the airline is more valuable than the actual airline yeah so it's um what it comes down to is that airlines are um, are actually this really complicated bundle of different services. And what is what is really unique about an airline that has a complicated network, so not just a bunch of direct flights from one city to another, but flights into hubs that then connect to other flights. Um, mm -hmm. What's neat about those airlines is that they do actually have these, um, these powerful network effects at the hub level and um, slightly weaker network effects at the overall route map level. And that means that for certain categories of travelers, Flying on that airline is just by far the default compared to using any other airline. And anytime you have a set of people who are regularly spending money on some company, you if you're managing that company, you start to think of other ways to monetize that customer relationship. And then, um, so you mentioned competitiveness in the airline industry. In one sense, it's notoriously competitive in that the the costs are mostly fixed. So the marginal cost of um, an empty seat versus a filled seat, it's basically you buy one more pack of peanuts and yep. you, you know, you burn a teaspoon extra of fuel and um, you've paid for that seat. So it's uh, in theory, the market clearing price, you know, at the last minute, um, an airline should be willing to let you have a seat at basically any price. And yep. um, in practice, the whole history of the airline industry is this struggle between the fact that at one level, it's a network effects business that has these monopolistic characteristics at another level, totally commoditized business with brutal competition. And, um, it sort of cycles back and forth through those states over time. It also cycles back and forth depending on exactly where you are. So if you're in a city that has a lot of different airlines that service that city, then, um, then it is a little bit more commoditized. But in some hubs, so, you know, Atlanta, for example, um, you it's really not, uh, you know, you don't really have a lot of other options. So, um, so the airline industry is always, individual airlines, they're always trying to 
extend the part of the the part of the map or like the the set of the market where they do have a lot of pricing power. And, and one way to do so that basically is to get like customers. a United or Delta or American Airlines, you know, essentially the airline piece of it has like a negative valuation. In in theory, but the the issue with taking that negative valuation seriously is that when you think about what makes that fintech company grow, it is the fact that it has this preferential access to a set of really valuable customers. It's like a loss leader to help the fintech side of it or something like that. Exactly. So so one way to look at it is that what this really tells you is that um, growing a financial services company is um, so so brutally difficult and that the, the growth constraint is so dominated by customer acquisition costs that it's literally worth it to start buying planes and flying people around the country and to have this heavily unionized workforce and have all these safety regulations and things like that is actually the most cost effective way to sign people up for credit cards. And the credit card business is so lucrative that it's actually worth it. If you think of United, Delta, American, like they make their money from like Chase paying them when for these when Chase gives somebody points, they basically then convert them to United points or American points or and, and that's how like United makes all this money from from is, is that the business model or yeah, pretty much. Although like going back to the bundle argument, um, there are just a bunch of different things that airlines do that are profitable on the margin. And then there are these really high fixed costs. So it's like any other kind of bundling thing. Like if you um, if you look at the early days of the cable industry, um, really, really expensive to dig up, uh, dig these trenches and yep. put cable in them and then cover them up and um, expensive and time consuming to get approval to do all these things. But once you've done it, um, once you've paid that expense, then the question is, how do you amortize that? If you, if, you, if you wire up a small town back in the day, cable industry, like you truly have a monopoly on that town. You know, yes, they could use, um, you know, they can get some, some, some TV over the air or something like that. But you, you, you have this like 30-year annuity that you're going to be able to get for a very long time. You have pricing uh, ability, et cetera. Like the airlines have a, a somewhat of that. It may be if you're in Atlanta or something, but in general, they, there still is enough competition from these other entrants that makes it, they're somewhat constrained, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's there are some constraints. So some of the some of the airports are are slot constraints. So they're just um, they're not there's not enough runway space slash time for as many flights as the airline could support. And um, airlines can or as, as much uh, as many flights as the airport could support. Um, airlines do adapt to that by buying bigger planes over time. And by the way, since I'm, I'm talking about this as if the industry functions now as it did then, so I'm talking about this in the present tense, um, yeah. you sort of have to take 2020 as this very special slice of history where all the rules got thrown out. And then um, since then, a lot of things are coming back, like a lot of um, a lot of the really pessimistic projections in, say, April or May of 2020, they're changing. Um, United had dr- During about- the pandemic, you, you, you had air traffic significantly down. But how did the loyalty programs do during that? Are they were they still very robust? And you know, it's, uh, how how did that do? Yeah. So um, the loyalty programs, like the main way to think about them, is that the the function that they serve for the airlines was that at the depths of the pandemic and pandemic induced recession and the drop in travel, airlines could point to those loyalty programs and say, "This is a solid business that um, that we know has these loyal customers, and we can borrow against it." So the real way that air, that the loyalty programs added value for airlines in the oh the drops their the pandemic, interest rates essentially yeah exactly it, uh, yeah it gave them a source okay. of cheap capital and and going back to this network effects thing. 
getting cheap capital in a network effects business during a downturn in that business is actually absolutely critical because it means that you don't have to trim your route network as much. So when there is a recovery, you don't lose that network effect. There's this, um, this wonderful interview that uh, Mark Andreessen gave a long time ago, or he, I think it was like a quote in, uh, in the A16Z blog about network effects, where he said, yeah, everyone loves talking about network effects, but they work the same way on the way down as they do on the way up. So ask yeah. the MySpace guys what they think about network effects. Yeah. Um, ask the Friendster guys. And that's that's true of airlines too, that every time a network carrier, so a carrier that has this hub and spoke model, every time they cut a route, they're actually reducing demand on all of the other routes that go into that same hub because yep. some of that demand is driven by people who are going to transfer. In fact, um, an, another wonderful quote from uh, this time from the airline industry is um, – the, the head of, um, he's now the CEO of United. He gave this uh, investor presentation in, I think, 20, um, in 2017, 2018. Um, the, the market absolutely hated it, but he was right. He said that an airline is actually a network carrier. It's a manufacturing company. It manufactures connections. And every time it adds a new route, it's adding demand on every other route that it serves. So if a given hub was profitable with X number of connections, it's going to be more profitable with X plus one, even more profitable with X plus two. And um, some of that is just because of the actual demand for tickets. And then some of it, um, an increasing amount is because you're capturing a larger set of the spending of people who spend a lot of money. So frequent travelers, the kind of people who actually have to know which airline is the best one to get from point A to point B. If they, uh, if their company's headquarters is in at point A and their biggest client is at point B, um, those people, it's really good to be able to get a royalty on all of the spending that they do. And indirectly, that's what airlines get when they have these loyalty relationships that create demand for points. I remember 30 years ago, like a lot of people were talking about how these like airline rewards essentially could become like the loyalty points that every business would use. And you would use the, the, the phone company would use it. Everybody would use these and it, it would, it would be, it wouldn't be like United points, it would be, it would be this like special class of points that you would go and, and, and it essentially be this, like this central digital currency in a way to be used in, in lieu of cash. Like why did that vision never materialize? It seems like a really solid idea. And, and in 30 years ago, they were in a better position to do that than, than they are today. Like, why did it never happen? So I think there are, there are at least two reasons for that. One is that Airlines are in this kind of special category where you are, um, if you are a frequent traveler, you're generally spending a lot of money on the airline. You probably have a pretty high income because the jobs that require frequent plane travel are, are typically high paying jobs. But when you spend money on the airline, you're generally not spending your own money. So yeah. there is this sort of socially acceptable kickback mechanism. And um, it's like, like right now, it is a little bit odd that you get these points from spending on, um, you know, spending money that's not actually your money to spend. But um, it actually used to be even more extreme. So um, in the early days of Southwest Airlines, you know, they've they've always had or they've, they've generally had this, um, you know, open boarding, um, every seat's the same, et cetera, that keeps their cost structure down. For a while, um, in the very early days, they actually had what they called a business class ticket. And the only difference was that it was more expensive than the regular ticket and you could expense it, and they gave you a bottle of bourbon if that's the ticket class you bought. So it is very much Southwest saying, please um, take this bottle of bourbon and, you know, give us, you know, take this bottle of bourbon as a kickback in exchange for giving us more money. More, more money. And um, yeah. I think it also works as like a marketing. It's a very thing. high it's, it's margin very bottle of bourbon that they sold. Yes. 
Yeah, and so there is, you know, anytime you have I mean, people in, spending in these, like, these points are, there's some sort of IRS ruling where these points are not taxable, right? Um, right. And so you can accumulate these points, which are very valuable, tax-free, um, and how, how does that, how does that, how did that tax ruling work? I know that the IRS has tried to go after it many times over the years, but it seems to be this like sacred cow that we can't touch these points. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't know the details of how that was negotiated. I would guess that, um, since it's one of those, one of the many cases where you have a concentrated set of interests with one interest, and then you have this very dispersed set of interests, like all of us are interested in a tax system that allocates the burden of running the government fairly across everybody. But anytime that burden gets allocated to you and you have an opportunity to send someone to Washington DC and make a really persuasive case that this is just not the way to do things, ah, that's that's kind of fun. So, you know, they-, they probably the airlines have arguments. a lot of clout as well, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. they have a lot of clout. Um, actually, uh, a really interesting thing about airlines is that they um, they have, uh, this, is, this is something I learned from a, a, a separate airlines podcast um, that airlines have this, um, they have one of the few high income professions that's disproportionately Republican. So pilots, they're unionized workers, they make six figures, but a lot of them vote Republican in part because um, there's uh, there is this career like military. Of, yeah, exactly. Military to to working at United or Delta or something. Um, so it is uh, it is rare to have a group of swing voters like that who they're they're union so they could vote democrat but they are um from the military they a lot of them are military so could go republican um that makes it a really valuable constituency and then um you do have um you know georgia is uh, an important state electorally so you, yeah. you generally want to keep delta happy and delta delta knows this and so they know that they um they know that they have a lot of voters who can be, if not mobilized, at least nudged in the direction of um, of right. Imagine if you, United was, sent or Delta sent an email out to all of their mileage holders, being like, "Hey, you know that your mileage might get taxed." Like you would see this revolt of taxpayers, uh, you know, very very quickly. Yeah, and there is there's also some sort of uh, implementation overhead if you get if you get a non cash benefit and then you get a bill in cash for it. Like usually the tax system, it tries to be set up so that you get taxed on liquidity and not on unrealized gains. So, you know, just like you wouldn't um, pay taxes if you bought a stock, it went way up and you didn't sell. Um, similarly, you there's a it's just harder to collect, um, it, whereas it's really easy. It's relatively easy to collect when money is changing hands because you can tell banks to you know report transactions. With if I acquire points in a game. Um, for for most of these games that are out there, when I acquire points, it, it's very difficult to sell those points outside of the game. And usually, the game company itself, if I am going to sell it, like they take a very hefty fee when I sell those points. Whereas there is a pretty robust market for selling your mileage points, um, and you could do it outside of. You know, you could do it outside of United. United doesn't take a fee when I transfer it, et cetera. And I, I always found that interesting. Like you could, you could, you could imagine this like really becoming a a, a currency um, that people use. But for whatever reason, you know, just like you know, you, you know, anything else, cigarettes and jails can become a currency, et cetera. You could imagine becoming a real currency, but for whatever reason, it never became that. And and, and the friction is quite low to 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 move these things around. So I, I I'm I'm fascinated why it just never happened. Yeah, so that that gets into the other argument for why, and it's it's a couple of things. One is the network effects of currency. So currencies 
I think currencies and languages probably have the strongest network effects of anything in the world. Yeah. And um, so there's- Like why just well, not are, use, you might as well use dollars or something. Exactly. Or, so, you know, even though, even though a lot of people want the miles from a particular airline, a whole lot more people want dollars. So in that sense, it's just easier to have the, your savings the, denominated The weird tax thing though, is like if I give somebody a million miles, which is um, let's say equivalent to um, uh, you know twenty thousand dollars or something, um, and um, you know if I give them twenty thousand dollars, they have to pay taxes on it. If I give them a million miles, they don't have to pay taxes on it. Um, so it's a so in some ways, like if they are going to use those million miles, or if they could just spend them the same way, like they could give those million miles to their lawyer or something, then they would probably prefer the miles than they would prefer them the money. You know, I think if there is a, if there is one way that points will get taxed forever, it is if someone like does this. If someone like, you know, buys out a company for several trillion miles, miles. and then <laughs> and then the owners of that company don't pay any taxes on their gains, yeah, yeah, they they will actually pay a lot of taxes in the end. They inflate very very fast. So yes. the central bank of the of United Airlines or the central bank of uh, of Delta does not have the same pressure as Jerome Powell, and they and they and they may uh, you know they can always inflate them at, at their will, and all of a sudden it could be Argentina, and those miles could could have very little worth. Yeah, yeah, and they do they do strategically inflate. So like the way to think about it, um, one way to think about it is that they are like a currency, but it's like a currency for an emerging market whose central bank is very much running for the benefit of that country and not the benefit yeah. of people outsiders who save in that currency. Um, they also have capital control. So like they, you know, they, people do talk about they bought points or they sold points and their account just got banned and the points got wiped out. So it's a thing to get banned. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how often it happens. It's basically, if you look for people on forums saying, I did something really aggressive with points and now I don't have any points. Um, they all got taken away. Cause, cause back in the them. day, like I used to buy upgrades from people. Um, so I would, you know, you could buy something, you, know, you can buy an upgrade from somebody and get a business class ticket. And instead of paying an extra $300 for a business class ticket, you could buy an upgrade for a hundred dollars or, or, you know, or something like that. And, uh, and, and that was a thing. There was like a secondary market for upgrades, which is somewhat similar to points. Yeah, you know, it, it could happen. Uh, basically, the way I think about it is that from the airline's perspective, that kind of secondary market is good if it increases demand for points. It is yep. bad if the cost of that is that people are less loyal because they know that they can cost effectively yes, buy points. Right. And yep. there's what the airlines seem to really like is that there are a lot of people who want to game the point system, but don't necessarily do it well. So it's sort of like how um, casinos in Las Vegas, they... They really want people to um, a buy a book about card counting, b get convinced yes. that they are able to card counts car count cards, and c um, enjoy their comp drinks. So yeah, as long yeah. as like if you can give someone who walks into your casino a copy of uh, Beat the Dealer and two or three comp martinis, you have a very <laughs> very valuable customer, and they will be convinced until the end of the evening that they are just uh, they're about to come back. So the airlines can have that kind of attitude too, where if you try to game the system and do something really aggressive and you fail for whatever reason, then you've spent a lot of money on the airline and again, incremental margin on selling one more uh, one more flight on a non-full plane is very high. So 
they benefit from people overestimating their ability to game the system and they tolerate people who don't. I had a friend in college that basically did like a point washing thing where they would start with, let's say, 100 points in United. They'd wash it through um, Marriott. They'd wash it through another one and they would end up with like 110 points with United. And they just kept doing this every month. And they would they would earn like ten percent interest on their points every single month for for you know it, for infinity. Um, and I know a lot of these things got closed down over time, but it was it's it's an interesting thing how all these people like care deeply about all this stuff. Yeah, my favorite of those arbitrages, and this was like ten years ago, was um, there was a promotion by the U.S. Mint selling oh, gold yeah. coins, yeah. and it was free yeah. shipping. Yeah, uh, like, so free shipping on one dollar coins. So yeah, yes. you get your cash back, and then you deposit the coins at a bank. Yeah, legal tender. You can do that, and, um, and you'd, yeah, make 2%, that. Uh, you'd make two percent. You'd make two percent a month or something like that, which is like an yeah. incredibly high interest. Um, that that's really interesting. Now, is there what what can like cryptocurrencies learn from airline points? Like, it does seem like there should be a lot of learning that goes across the 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 two. But I, I don't know that there's anyone who like has ever run airline points who's gotten like super into crypto. So, what yeah. could they learn from one another? Yeah, so I, I would say um, one thing that they can learn is that if you want people to adopt a new um, new pseudo currency, you do need to give it some real world benefit. And so that's something where Bitcoin does not have that at all. Yeah. But what Bitcoin does have is that because the creation of new supply is known, you at least know that um, it's not inflationary. So it's almost like Bitcoin you can, what you learn about Bitcoin is the ways in which it is not like these currencies. On the other hand, one of the things that we do know um, from from point systems is someone can always spin up a new one. So it is, um, you know, it's, it is a competitive business in, in the sense that it's not like anyone will have a, a monopoly on rewards points, but the to the extent that someone does have something close to a monopoly, it is because of this huge investment in fixed real world assets. So it's almost like, Crypto is the the super abstract, born as an abstraction kind of idea of currency. And then mileage points are almost at the opposite end of the spectrum, where they are born as um, as something that is a token that represents access to physical goods and is issued by the creator or by the, the seller of those physical goods, or I guess in this case, services. Yeah. But it's like almost like... Um, Bitcoin is like the most abstract theoretical kind of currency, and then mileage points are the most concrete, real kind of currency. They're they're both abstractions. They're both um, these electronic, digitized representations of something in the real world. But when you really dig into Bitcoin, it's so um, it's like highly the Fed is like in between the two or something. In a weird yeah, way. yeah, and yeah. you like for any currency system, with the exception, uh, I guess. So crypto, it needs. It, it need to have value. It needs some correspondence to the real world. It needs people who are willing to buy it for speculative reasons, or buy yep. it and use it to buy drugs, or whatever they're doing. But um, it is—it's weirdly untied to the real world in the sense that, um, like the the Bitcoin protocol does not know what it's being used for. It doesn't have any conception of um, the difference between a speculative purchase or yep. shopping or um, just someone transferring things from one wallet to another that they own. In fact, the Bitcoin protocol actually builds in this notion of time, which is really interesting. So you don't actually need even a third party um, time tracker who can say that the sequence of events was this happened and then this happened. The blockchain, each block sort of represents the tick of time. So Bitcoin created its own independent time system 
in addition to its own independent transaction system and its own independent auditing system and its own independent saving system. And these are all bundled together in the protocol. Whereas everything, almost everything else that we interact with in the financial world, someone has to tie it to the real world. So like a futures contract, it is not just, um, it's not just a piece of paper or not just a digital representation of a piece of paper. Like it is a promise to deliver or an acceptment or yeah. a promise to accept a certain quantity of physical goods on some date at some time. And based some on something that actually happens, like some fact or something like that, or yeah. whatever. Now, now what, um, you, are there other geographies or um, countries where they've like, where the, these kind of loyalty points have evolved differently. I know there's these air mile reward program, which is owned by loyalty one in Canada, which is, um, which is, is a lot more than just airline, uh, uh rewards. Um, how have we seen some of these countries evolve differently? Yeah. So there's, this actually goes back to the, the economics of credit cards and specifically the economics of transaction fees. Yeah. And um, it's a two-sided market. It is, it is very, well, it's a, a many-sided market if you, if you consider the financial institutions involved. And um, in markets that have a lot of different players at a lot of different levels, the economics can settle at very different points. So in the U.S., the way things have settled is that the cost to a merchant for accepting credit card payments is actually fairly high compared to other payment opportunities. On the other hand, the number of people who want to spend on credit cards is also really high. And well, so um, in the U.S., we're talking, you know, somewhere between two and two point five percent, right? Um, yeah. Is the average vig of a credit card transaction? But like in even a place like Australia, I think it's like 05 percent. Like. Is, is is there some sort of like government mandate in Australia saying we're going to protect consumers more or, or lower prices or what? How did, how did that how did that evolve? Yeah. So interchange fees. Australia has also very places. wealthy people who use credit sure. cards as well. Right. Yeah. So there, there have been interchange caps in various places. Part of what happened with the U.S. was that when credit cards started, it was not trivial to fund the system. Like it, you had to actually buy computers at a time when computers were quite right, expensive. Like the Bank AmeriCard and Fresno yeah. in the 50s. And okay, yeah. Yeah. So they they had they had meaningful costs and they needed some way to pay those costs. As the costs have gone down, so a lot of those costs are ultimately tied to Moore's law. So um, they've been declining really, really fast since Fresno. That said, um, the as the cost declined, the two things you can do if you're in a market where your underlying costs have declined are well, I guess there are three things you could do. Um, one thing you can do is just say, hooray, my margins went up. And then um, then you suddenly realize your competitors are all eating into your market share. So yeah. now you don't have you don't have anything. Um, one thing you can do is cut prices. And another thing you can do is since it is a multi-sided network, you find which side of the network is most sensitive to getting better economics and you give them better economics. So as it turns out, the um, spenders were more sensitive to getting rewards than merchants were to paying that high VIG. So in the U.S., we ended up with this equilibrium where if you are a credit card holder, you you get a lot for spending money with your card. And some of that comes out of the merchant, um, com uh, comes out of the merchant margin. But because you're getting a lot, you're more willing to spend with your card. So we um, we ended up with this equilibrium where the fees are pretty high. A lot of it goes back to the spender, to the, the cardholder. And then um, because of that, we're locked in equilibrium where merchants can't really say no to credit cards, except in yeah. a handful of cases. And um, But there and could so, be a government mandate saying we're capping at 1% or 1.5% yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it it, I do find it odd. Like if I, if I uh, use a, if, if you use a credit card 
and pay off your balance every month. And you could get 2% back or whatever you can get um, today. Um, if you use a debit card, same thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. For the exact same transaction, you're paying your Netflix on your debit card, you pay your Netflix on your credit card. Um, you don't get that 2% back. So you right. could earn, you know, and a 2% interest rate per month or whatever that is, is an extremely high interest rate that you earn on your purchases. Now, now most people don't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on purchases, but you know, even if you're spending, you know, let's say the average consumer is spending a thousand dollars a month on purchases, including all their groceries and stuff like that, like two percent a month is a lot of money that they get to that they get to make on that. Yeah, and that's something that keeps those programs popular because it is so much more noticeable to get money after spending money than it is to spend slightly less money, you really won't notice if yep. the cost of a gallon of milk goes down five cents because interchange fees got compressed. And um, knowing knowing the economics of a lot of retailers, the um, the price cuts that would ensue if, um, if there were a cap on interchange fees, there'd be some products that get a lot cheaper, some products that don't get any cheaper because you still need products that people buy regularly. So like, um, I gave milk as an example. Milk's price would probably not change. Rotisserie chickens would probably not change in price. These are things that people go to the people go to the store and buy them. Uh, like they go to the store to buy them, and so the the grocery store wants to have these things located um, located such that you're walking past just a wall of consumer packaged goods that are basically billboards on the shelf yeah. that will get you to buy things. So um, those. Now why the are some like, there? There are some things I can pay by credit card. Uh, most things you pay by credit card, I can't get a cheaper price if I wrote a check or wrote, you did a wire or something like that for it. But there are some things, my credit card, where they're, they're essentially saying, hey, if you pay by credit card, you have to pay an extra 2.5%. So if I'm going to pay like my kid's tuition or something, mm -hmm. my credit card, they they charge an extra 2.5% to cover the fee. Whereas if I pay my groceries by credit card, uh, um, or not, I don't, I don't have a different price. Like, how does that, why is that like the, uh, the credit card companies allow one, not the other, or et cetera? Yeah. So they, they used to really, really frown on that. So, you know, if you're paying rent or something, you just wouldn't have the option to pay it by credit card because they, yep. the, your, your landlord would not want to eat that cost. Um, and the, the regulations on that have changed. So it's, it's a lot harder for them to just say, say no, that said for merchants, there, there are benefits that um, are because their cost structure is not just interchange fees and it's not just inventory and rent. Yep. They also have the marginal cost of just paying people to actually Go handle cash money. or, yep. yeah, so people who, who um, manage the register. So for your rent, it's worth it because it could be $1,000 a month or something like that. Yep. Yeah. So, so for a lot of them, it's just, it's not even worth it to give people the option. Like, I'm sure someone like Walmart runs the numbers and they do the math on, if everyone in line stops for 10 seconds to think about this, and we know that the um, we know that line length is one of these chaos theory driven things where you have these little delays that just ripple through the entire system and add extensive delays, they might actually realize that they save X in interchange fees and then they have to spend two X on additional people to manage the checkout process. And um, you know, they have they have the actual risk of bounce checks and they have to count the cash, et cetera. Uh, so the the costs are not. Not super obvious. There's a there's a wonderful anecdote um, from it's in a couple books on the history of the credit card industry where during the Fresno drop or soon after that, yeah. um, someone from Bank of America visited. I think it was a pharmacy, and the pharmacy had three full time employees whose job was collect receivables from people. Because right, they lines. used to get let people buy on credit anyway back in the day, right? You would go there and they yeah. would write it in a book or something, right? 
Yeah, so there were there were th these people who were using mechanical calculators and they're sending out a bill, you know, Mr. Smith, you owe $2.37, yeah. please pay within the next 30 days. Um, that is just, it's brutal for any business. I mean, among other things, it means that if you lose one of your three collections people, that suddenly your receivables are ballooning because you're not collecting fast enough. And now your business is much more capital intensive than it used to be. And banks, banks should be in the business of extending credit. That's something they're actually pretty good at. So if you move that back office process and that balance sheet onto a bank instead of a retailer, then you have this nicer division of labor and the pharmacy can focus on actually selling medication and food and the bank can focus on managing credit lines and consolidating these bills. So instead of owing $5 to each of 20 merchants, you owe $100 to one bank. And then if the bank wants, if you can't pay that right now, then the bank can lend it to you and you pay interest on that. And it's a whole lot easier to do the interest calculation one time instead of 20 times, especially when people are still hand cranking these calculators to actually run the numbers. So going back to the, the other question about like things outside the U.S., so you, you, what you're saying is the U.S. is a little bit odd because the U.S. has these very high interchange fees, which can pay for all these points, whereas uh, a lot of other countries have much, much lower. Are there countries that have like similar interchange fees where they have the similar opportunities or I don't think other places have really hit the same equilibrium. I could be I could be wrong about that, but what is and is, is the interchange happen, fee based on the 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 card holder or is it based on where you spend your card? Like if I go to Europe where the interchange fees are lower and with my own credit card, how did how does that work? I actually I don't know how the international interchange fees work exactly. I know the credit card companies do talk about making a lot of money from cross-border transactions. So I'm sure there's some, some uh, decent there's an FX there, but fee. There's an FX yeah. fee that they make money from. Okay. Got it. Okay. So that, that, that makes sense is that they're they're So, so you could lose out on the F you could lose out on the 2% FX. So that's probably how they pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, it's always a bundle. So yeah, they, they find some way to, to monetize it. I, I don't know off the top of my head what the, how that interchange fee um, is, is set up when when it's international, so it's going potentially across different you know sub subsets of the same uh, broader network. What what is worth pointing out is that there is sort of an analog to loyalty programs um, in in countries that are underbanked, which is that a lot of times if there is an app that just gets a lot of people spending money digitally for the first time, it will expand into being a financial services super app. So um, some of the ride-sharing companies in Southeast Asia, they've gone from just being ride-sharing companies to also having banking services, being able to, um, you know, if you're if you're giving people rides in, in your car or your e-bike, um, now you can borrow money to buy a better car or e-bike, yeah, yeah, you can get yeah. insurance, you can get life insurance. And, and nothing um, different than like, you know, Amazon gives their merchants loans or Square gives their merchants, you know, so you, you, they become these lenders and stuff, right? Shopify, similar, right? Yeah, but it, it, it actually ties back to the idea that customer acquisition in finance is really hard. And um, mm. for for a ride sharing app or like the um, the the video game that C Limited has created, it just acquires so many customers that it's almost um, it's almost a business imperative to maximize the value of those customers by turning them into financial services customers instead of ride sharing or video game customers. So it um, it is kind of analogous in that you have this business that creates access to a set of customers and then you can sell them financial services. But the difference is in countries that don't have a huge consumer banking system, 
So in a lot of countries, banking systems are um, a lot more weighted towards business rather than consumers. So it's fewer mortgage loans and credit cards, a lot more of we get deposits from this um, tin mining company and we lend the money to a railroad or a steel mill or something. So a lot more just B2B type banking. Um, the B2C thing, you need some reason for consumers to use digital payments and not cash, or you need some system that acts as an interface between digital money and cash. And once you have it, then you can build a consumer-facing uh, banking product very quickly. So that's, I would say that is um, that is the, the developing world analogy. Is um, super apps are to underbanked developing world as uh, loyalty programs are to hyper-financialized developed world. And one more thing on the airlines. So they're 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 increasingly also becoming cargo companies, right? They're increasingly mm -hmm. making money from cargo, which is. Obviously, a, a, a good business if you have empty seats during COVID and 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 other. How, how is that changing over time? And uh, you are, are and we're going to see United also becoming like a cargo company over time. Yeah, so um, that is another part of the bundle that um, yeah, yeah. planes are big, and there are there are parts of planes that have room for things other than human beings and their comfort animals. So um, yeah, you can if you fill up a plane with more stuff than you make more money. Um, and there have been planes that have been retrofitted to be pure cargo planes rather than um, passengers plus cargo. The convenient thing about the passenger plus cargo model is that typically if you have a city that has a lot of people who want to fly in and out, those people also purchase goods. So um, it's convenient to um, use the same planes to fly those goods. So if something, if planes flying from LA to New York, um, it's going to have a lot of people who want to go from LA to New York, but there are a lot of things that get unloaded at ports in LA, and then um, they've got to get to New York as quickly as possible. The the cargo business, um, one of the interesting features there, one of the interesting trends is Amazon. Not just the fact that Amazon is growing, is um, is flying its own planes more, and um, is offering faster shipping, which tends to mean they need uh, a a shipping, they need a logistics network that can handle these last minute um, last minute shipments and um, Air, air freight is uh, very expensive, but it is very quick compared to a truck or a boat. Um, so, so that's one factor. But what's really interesting is that Amazon has been striking these deals with airlines, um, where Amazon agrees to um, agrees to buy their freight services, so agrees to ship stuff on these on their planes. And one of the things that Amazon gets is it gets a warrant to buy stock in the airline at a fixed price. And what's really cool about these deals, um, some country talks about this in their prospectus, is that the vesting schedule for the warrant, so when Amazon is actually able to exercise the warrant and how much of that warrant they get, is a function of the shipping volume that Amazon does with that airline. So, yeah, so, so you, the more the more the more business this company is doing with shipping like sun country or something like that one of these airlines probably also is the more valuable they are and so amazon gets this like double dip essentially on their on the business exactly and um it's almost so like a re it's almost a rebate that they've negotiated but they they negotiate the rebate and warrants yeah yeah they've so so basically the implication of this is that what amazon thinks is that um, the cargo business is actually going to become a huge business such that Amazon will not be able to catch up just by buying lots and lots of planes. So yep. there are lots and lots of planes that, that you could buy now, but Amazon is still taking this equity stake in airlines that is structured so that Amazon owns more of the airline if 
it ships a lot more. So Amazon is basically saying, we actually don't think we can buy a fleet of planes fast enough to catch up with the growth in cargo, in air cargo. And that's a really interesting um, implicit claim that they've made. So yeah. either, you know, either, either Amazon is doing something really weird where they're speculating in a bunch of different, um, a bunch of different cargo company stocks, or they just think that um, eventually air freight is going to be a much bigger business and a much more profitable business. And it's actually going to be constrained by the availability of planes or people to fly them. Interesting. Well, I have a couple of personal questions for you. I know that you, sure. you made a decision to write full time um, and you, you basically make, I, I, I'd say, uh, probably a majority of your living from your subscriptions of your newsletter, The Diff. Like, how, how do you see the 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 economy of these people who are writing paid newsletters? You, you were definitely one of the more earlier people, but it, it's, it's now, at least in the last, it seems like six months, a lot of people are now starting their own newsletters and stuff. Um, how, how do you see that evolving over time? Well, I would say... Um, you know, every business that um, every new business actually turns out to be an old business and um, newsletters are no different. There are a lot yeah. of huge companies that were originally newsletters, including things like the Wall Street Journal. Um, I would argue that Bridgewater Associates was originally Ray's Thoughts and that that evolved into the hedge fund business. Um, Charles Schwab was also originally a newsletter. Like newsletters have been around for a long time, especially finance newsletters. And my yep. newsletter does talk a lot about finance. Um, and what part of what's changed is just that it's gotten a whole lot easier to set up the business and collect payments. And yep. um, that is, it is nice because there are um, a lot of people who like to write and are good at writing, don't like to send invoices. They're very bad at sending invoices and collecting. And yep. I'm like that too. So um, that is, that is one piece of it. And then the the internet has just it's made it easier to find people who have very narrow specific interests and to follow them and see what else they have to say and a lot of what i do when i write issues of the newsletter is i pick some topic that i know a little bit about or i've seen some hints that it's interesting and then like airlines, i try to learn everything instance. i can yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so and then so you go airlines, super I can, deep yeah I, I can cheat a little bit there i um before i was in the newsletter business i worked in finance and um at one point i was um, analyzing airline stocks so um i did have an early start to to understanding airlines but um other stuff i've written in the newsletter i had i had no idea what i was talking about until i started reading about it um so it's and part of what the newsletter lets people do part of what my newsletter lets people do is outsource, um, outsource diving down these various rabbit holes. Yep. Because um, I found when I worked in finance, th there were times where, um, you know, if you're at a hedge fund, for example, there's often, I was at a long, short hedge fund trading equities, mostly internet, media, telecom, et cetera. Um, I was an analyst there. And um, we, you know, you'd have a set of themes, you know, like a set of big themes, like really important things happening in the world. You have a set of narrow things that are changing right now. And then you have the set of, Here's what we think about this stock, and here are the catalysts, et cetera. Um, and I always found that some of the big themes, I always wish that I had more time to explore them. Some of the more, you know, twelve-month themes, I also you had to you had to do triage. You had to say, here here are ten ways the world is changing this year, and I have enough time to figure out three of them. So I hope I pick the right three in advance. And um, I'd always I always liked doing more of that kind of work. So now I just do it. And some of my readers are at hedge funds, and so there will be a trend that they know has been happening for a while. They haven't had a chance to dive into and I'm able to, to do some of the early work for them, point them to sources. I think this is, um, 
This is also part of the value add for the newsletter is that if I do a deep dive on something, I will read a bunch of stuff and I will tell people what I read so they can they can reconstruct the work and they can yep. go deeper on any subtopic that they care about. Now, how's like, you know, back in the day, like Grant's interest rate observer or something like I, I believe it, you know, all their newsletters are paid. Like I, I there don't it's not like he was putting out like or maybe he was like a lot of free content. Whereas it seems like most of the people that write popular newsletters, including yourself, there's a lot of free material that's out there. And there's some sort of incentive to put really good stuff out for free to help you get paid people, right? In some ways, that's the way, besides for doing these podcasts, maybe you get all these paid subscribers that that, that come on. Um, so how, how does it work? Because like, in some ways, you may have this incentive to put your best stuff as free. So all these people come in, and then maybe like the super niche stuff is paid? Or, or, or how does that how does that like decision tree happen? Yeah, um, I, I would say you're right that um, forwarded emails are a huge driver, like probably, you know, half of my income comes from the forward button in Gmail indirectly. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's that's just like a, a hedge fund person sending it to her colleagues or something and then they subscribe or, or something. Like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that's one reason that I do actually like having uh, financial industry people because they usually have relationships with people at operating businesses. So if I write about 20 different topics in a month, um, you know, the, the ideal reader is someone who forwards each issue of the diff to a different person who would care about that specific topic. So that allows me to talk about a lot of things and sort of have generalist subscribers and, um, or have, have uh, yeah, generalist subscribers and then more domain specific readers yep. beyond that point. Um, yeah. In terms of how to decide what's free, what's paid. Um, I, I guess there are, uh, there are a couple of ways to think about it. One of which is, if I don't have a huge backlog of ideas, or if I know that part of my backlog I just can't get done in time for the next issue, I just write whatever I can write next. And um, sometimes I have to structure my time so that I get certain things, I get certain research done in time to write about it. So um, in some ways, it's it's hard to really plan this ahead. Like I can't, I I am uh, you know I'm taking three or four pieces of the puzzle out of the box at a time and fitting them in where I can, but I'm not looking at the entire set of pieces because I don't know what I'll be writing next. So um, that constrains it a little bit. Um, I do, what I try to do is if I'm writing something I know will be broadly interesting, then it's more likely that I'll make it free. If it's broadly interesting and very timely, that's another reason to make it free. So yeah. when a big company goes public, I try to write uh, an early S1 tear down and yep. just explain the business as best I can. So that that stuff is more likely to be free, but there's also stuff that is a lot better if it's paid. So one of the nice things about a paywall is, um, and the, the Substack people have pointed this out, you can have hate readers on a free blog. People yep. who read your stuff because it makes them mad and then they send you really angry emails. No one pays to be a, a hate reader. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, totally. Almost no one. I, I actually had one guy who... Uh, he did say that he subscribed specifically to leave me a comment to tell me I was wrong about something, <laughs> but it was actually a really thoughtful comment. And oh, great. He has so those are ones you want. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. even, you know, it, it channels hate into something much more, much more constructive. At least you're making money from the hate. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But it, what it, what it really, uh, what it really does is it allows you to say things that, you know, if you just, if you wrote this online, you know, 99% of people would interpret it the way that you mean it. And 1% of people would take the dumbest possible interpretation of it. And there's a chance that one of those people would have 500,000 Twitter followers and they briefly ruin your day. Yeah. So 
that's a risk when you're writing stuff on the open web. It is really not a risk for paywalled stuff. There yep, have been you can't really very, share very it few, and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And people, people very occasionally get, um, canceled or get controversy or, yeah, for things that yeah. they, they wrote on a, behind a paywall, but the viral God, so you can be, so you can be a little bit more free with your thoughts or opinions or et cetera as well. Um, you, you, you might not have to censor yourself as much. So there's been this kind of unbundling of uh, writers in a way you, you used to write, you know, someone used to write for the New Yorker and now they can make money going direct to, to people. Um, you know, but, but it's hard for even a, a very wealthy person to pay for like eight newsletters or, you know, or something like that starts to add up really quickly. Yours is $20 a month. Right or yeah. something, right? So you know that starts to add up really, really fast for you know, for 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 people. Um, is is there going to be some sort of like rebundling where I can like buy this like finance bundle and I get burn, I get strategy, and I get like all these other things together? Or how, how do you see that evolving? There have been some interesting bundles, and um, what one of the constraints on bundling is that the the real cost of a newsletter that talks about finance and tech, like trajectory, the by far the biggest cost that you pay if you subscribe to Stratechery is the opportunity cost of your time. And yep. it's the same for the diff. It's the same for right. um, money stuff. So, so really um, bundling, it solves one problem, which is it is, um, it is annoying to pay, you know, $2,000 a year for all of your newsletters. Um, I do pay a whole lot of money for, for newsletters and newspaper subscriptions and things like that, but um, it is all work expenses. So at least yep. I get the tax deduction. Um, I do read the stuff. Um, so, you know, that, that is one problem, but the other problem is the time shortage and actually bundling makes the time shortage worse because right. you're getting more you get stuff. all this extra stuff. Right. Yeah. So yeah, unless, I, and, then, and then you'd want an editor to basically tell you what the best stuff of burn to read. And now all of a sudden you're going back to the old newspaper days or something. Right. Exactly. So, so bundling, um, I think bundling is a tougher proposition for people who have some kind of unique value proposition that appeals to people who have a high opportunity cost for the time, especially if the time is um, time that is, that could be work time, then you do have this, um, you do have this implicit question of, is this the most valuable thing I can be doing for my job right now is reading this, yep. this thing. And um, so some newsletters, some newsletters are more, more leisure reading and they don't really, um, they don't suffer from that problem. But um, the, a lot of the best of the leisure reading newspaper uh, newsletters, they also link to a lot of long form stuff. So it's still fairly time consuming to, um, to actually read them thoroughly. Yep. So I think some of it, like part of what newsletters- right, like, I mean, if you want to read money stuff every day, like that's like a serious commitment to go read yes. that. I mean, some people do read it every day, but like I can and maybe get to one a week or something. Cause it's so, even though I want to read everyone, it just, it's, it's a, it's a really big time commitment. Or right, well, last question we ask all of our guests. So if you can go back in time, um, what advice would you wish you could give your younger self, let's say the 18 year old burn? So Dogecoin hadn't been invented. I'm sure everyone answers with crypto. So <laughs> the um, yeah. 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 What is, what is good advice for a young person? I, one of the things that I have gotten better at over time is um, combination of um, cutting losses and having having some sense that uh, I think pursuing happiness and avoiding suffering are actually um, you know everyone does that to some extent but they're they're pretty poor priorities. There's a sense in which 
um, you should almost think of having a happiness budget. And if you want to accomplish things, if you're too happy while you're accomplishing things, like at the time that you're working, you're probably, you probably could be working harder and someone who has a higher <laughs> tolerance for misery will probably accomplish more than you. And um, so I think, I think just having that. Well, there's some laughter curve there, right? If it's too misery, it's, you, you'll never do it. Cause it, it's just, you won't be motivated. Exactly. Um, but if it's too happy, maybe someone's going to work harder. So you, you, there's some sort of medium pr- place for you to, to be right. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe if I had, if I had read um, Starting Strength that much earlier in my life, I would have internalized this because um, powerlifting is, uh, is definitely one of those domains where if you're not suffering somewhat while you do it, you're not getting any stronger. On the other hand, if it's really, really painful, you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably going to hurt yourself and never be able to squat again. So um, you do want to balance that. But um, I, I do think that having, having some sort of target level of suffering or like having a target level of trade-offs where you say, you know, someone who's really committed to accomplishing this, here are some things that they would be willing to sacrifice to do it. Um, You want to make a list of those potential sacrifices and say, if I am not making this sacrifice, I'm probably not trying as hard. So um, I, I think uh, Patrick McKenzie had this line. Um, so this was probably five or 10 years ago when Game of Thrones was huge instead of being totally culturally non-existent. Um, he said something like, if you, if, you know who, uh, if you know what a Khaleesi is, then you actually had enough time to learn how to code. You just uh-huh. didn't. And yeah. I yeah. think that's true, that there it is, there is this super abundance of leisure opportunities and there's a super abundance of useful things to do. And, um, alt tab is just a, there's a lot of muscle memory there. Um, control T and then typing in reddit.com, a lot of muscle memory there. Yeah. It is really important to resist that stuff because it is a continuous tax on your ability to accomplish things. And, um, on the other hand, this is a, this is a good reason to do things like buy physical books, buy physical magazines, is that if you can force yourself to focus for a while, you can get, you get nonlinear benefits from learning a whole lot about narrow topics and then taking new topics, using analogies from the previous ones and accelerating your learning from there. Cool. Well, this has been great. Thank, thank you so much. Now, please tell us where we can find you on the internet. I'd be delighted. So my newsletter is at diff.substack.com, D-I-F-F.substack.com. Okay, awesome. Well, Byrne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. This was great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.